morning. Am I on here? Can you hear me? Okay. Um, really glad to come and be back with my Catalyst family. Really enjoy every time to come and to connect again, to be a part of uh, what you guys are doing here. I think I shared this before, but I watch every sermon, so like I know everything that's going on. <laughs> so um, when Pastor Barry asked me to preach a part of this series that we've been going through, uh, which is about the created and called, uh, I was more than happy to come and be part of it. So this week we had looked at uh, God's design for us uh, being created and called, and we looked at God's design for gender, God's design for marriage, God's design for family, and then today is God's design for me, for me, okay? So what is God's design for me? So it's interesting when he asked me to come and to speak on this, I was thinking initially, God's design for me. Should I talk about how God has designed us? Maybe we'll look at like our personality or our gifts or different things like that. And so initially that's what I thought I was going to be speaking on. But when I had asked the Lord about it, he took me in a different direction, right? So uh, I'm going to share that today okay so when i thought about god's design for us uh whenever i think about that i always go back to god's original intent okay so i want to look in genesis and so let's look at genesis and look at god's design for us initially when he created us okay so genesis chapter one is when we see god's initial um instructions about how he created us that he created us in his image but chapter 2 has a little bit more insight. And so let's look at chapter 2, verse 7, when he talks about how he created Adam. Okay, so let's read that. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. I'm reading out of the ESV. It says, Then the Lord formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Okay, so in chapter 2, verse 7, God gives a little bit more insight about how exactly this creation actually happened when he created Adam and then eventually created Eve. And what does verse 7 add? He says, when the Lord formed the man from the dust of the ground, he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Okay, literally that word when it says breath of life is his spirit. He breathed into man his spirit and as a result, he came alive. Okay, so before that, I'm assuming that he created his body, created his body, formed it from the dust of the ground. And it's interesting, like I heard archaeologists talk about how when they dug deep into the crust of the, of the earth, that every single um, kind of component of, of what makes up the human body is actually found in the ground. Right? So when we look at this account, it's kind of confirmed by the archaeologists. So what happened? That God formed him from the dirt, from the ground, but he wasn't alive. He was just an empty shell. He was just a body. Until what? Until the Lord breathed his spirit into Adam. And then he came alive. So what does this say to me? This says to me, not only were we created in his image, but really we were created to have intimacy with God, for his spirit to dwell inside of us. Now it's interesting because as a Christian, as a New Testament Christian, the one that has received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, we also experience the same thing when the Holy Spirit comes and dwells in us. 
So we see that what Jesus intends to come and to bring is just to restore what he initially established in the creative order when he made man. That was his intent for us, for us to be intimate with him, for his spirit to dwell inside of us. It's interesting because when you see after this, after Adam experienced that and Eve as well, that when they had the Lord's spirit in them and they had the Lord's presence and intimacy inside of them, they walked in the garden. They enjoyed God. But then chapter 3 comes. What happens in chapter 3? The fall. Okay, that's when sin occurs. And then they break that fellowship. That intimate fellowship that God had intended for, for Adam and for Eve with him was broken. Okay? Then they have a list of different punishments. And, you know, they go through the different things. They address uh, Adam, and they address Eve, and they address the serpent, and they address these different things. Um, and then after that, we see in chapter 3, verse 22 and 23, let's, let's look at that. Genesis chapter 22, chapter 3, verses 22 and 23. Then the Lord said, Behold, the man has become like, uh, like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore let the Lord send him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. Okay, so we see here that they had taken from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which the Lord said you're not to take. And then after, as a result, what is, what is the consequence of this? He cast them out of the garden. Okay, so if the garden is like where they came and had like this uh, fellowship, un unadulterated fellowship and oneness with God, he cast them out of Eden. And it's interesting, when I first looked at this a while ago, I thought, oh, this is a punishment. This is another consequence for sin. But when I looked at it more closely, I thought, this is actually not a punishment. The punishment was already given earlier in chapter 3, when he talked about, you know, uh, gave those consequences to Satan and then to Eve and then to Adam. He already gave the consequences. And after that, actually, when you look at it, he actually slaughtered an animal. Okay, that was a precursor to the sacrifice for sin. He slaughtered an animal because he, made, he gave them coverings to cover over their nakedness. He already dealt with the sin. He already gave them the punishment. So what is this? What is this if this is not punishment? What is this? Is if he already addressed the sin, why is he kicking them out of Eden? Why is he saying this? He says, so they cannot take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. This is why he's casting them out of the garden. He's casting them out of the garden so they won't continue to take from the tree of life and continue to live forever. Why is this not a punishment? I think this is actually a grace. God's intent for us was to be in oneness with him and to enjoy him and to be in his presence. Because sin has entered the world, that can no longer happen the way that he intended. He does not want them to live perpetually in this state where they are not in complete oneness together with him. So he actually, in his grace, he cast them out. Later, in, in, when you look throughout Genesis and you look at how long people are living, the age starts going down and down and down and down and down. Again, it's God's grace. He does not want us to live in this state 
where we are not experiencing his true desire and his design for us, which is complete oneness and intimacy with him and his presence. He does not want us to live in this broken state forever. It's his grace. It's his grace is the reason that he cast them out of Eden. It's his grace that he doesn't allow them to eat from the tree and live in this kind of unaltered, un, unideal, not his design state forever. It's his grace. It's his grace that they're not living a thousand years anymore. It's his grace. It's his grace because he says, I don't want man to be in this state forever. Ultimately, that's why he sends Jesus to kind of restore this, like we said. To go back to what he originally had with Adam when he breathed into Adam's nostrils and filled him with his spirit, he wanted to restore that again. He wanted to restore his original intent for us. He wanted to restore, this is why I made you. This is how I created you, for me, for intimacy with me, my spirit to be dwelling inside of you. That's what every believer has who believes in Jesus Christ, that intimacy together. Let's look at an example of what I'm talking about, okay? And I think a great example is Jesus, okay? So I'm going to look at actually an account in Matthew chapter 26, but before we read it, I wanted to kind of give the background a little bit, okay? So this is in the Garden of Gethsemane, okay? So Jesus is about to go to the cross, and he's about to go die on the cross. But before this, he had already been talking to his disciples about this day, right? In fact, uh, several, several weeks ahead of time, they're going up, they're coming uh, down from Galilee, and they're going over to Jerusalem, and he tells them, we're going to go here, and the reason we're going to go here is because I'm going to be handed over to the authorities. We're going to go down here because I'm going to die, I'm going to be raised again. They didn't understand what that meant, but he said, I'm going to go here to die, and I'm going to be raised again on the third day. He says it over and over and over. If you guys are reading through the New Testament, okay, you're probably going through the Gospels. You know what I'm talking about. If you see this, he says it over and over and over and over again. I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to go to the cross. This is why we're going here. This is why we're traveling here. He tells them many, many, many times. Okay. So that's the kind of background we're going to lead to this encounter we have with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Let's read it. Okay, Matthew 26, 36 to 39. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. He said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Okay. Now, I gave you the background of this because we have to understand what's going on here. Because when he says... And he's praying and asking God for this cup. The cup is representative of suffering. So obviously he's going to be referring to the suffering he's about to experience on the cross. So he's saying, can you let this cup pass from me? 
which sounds very odd if you've been reading this story because what's been happening all along in this story is like, this is my purpose. This is why I came to earth. This is why God sent his son to do this. This is what he kept telling disciples over and over again. I don't think he was afraid to die. In fact, he kept telling them he's going to die. And when Peter says, no, Lord, this is never going to be, what does he tell Peter? Get behind me, Satan. He's resolute. He's very determined to go to the cross. He keeps telling them over and over again, he's going to go to the cross. So what is going on here in the garden? Why is he telling them all of a sudden and asking the Father, can you please let this cup pass from me? Why is Jesus saying this? Why is he praying this? Why is he praying this when he already had his mind set? Why is he praying this when he knows this is his whole purpose and his life's intent and the culmination of his life and his ministry here on earth is going to be this? He knows it. He shares it. He testifies it. He keeps saying it over and over to his disciples. So the question is, why is he praying this prayer? Why? Why is he praying this prayer to ask this to pass from him? You look at verse 38. So much so that he's wanting this to pass that he said his soul is very sorrowful even to the point of death. Literally, he feels like he's dying. Okay, it's not in this account, but you see later that he's straining and struggling so much that actually blood is coming from his pores. This is the intensity of the sorrow and it really like torture that he's experiencing right now in the garden. He's going through something very, very intense. His soul, his mind, his will, his emotions are sorrowful to the point of death. What's happening? Why is he praying this prayer? Why is his soul soul so uh, you know in going through so much suffering to the point where he feels like he's going to die I don't think it's because he's going to die physically I don't think he's going to die physically because he already knows he's going to be raised again along with what he tells him that he's going to die he also tells him he's going to be resurrected Okay, I don't think he's afraid of dying physically. I think he's afraid of dying spiritually. We know what physical death is, but what's spiritual death? Spiritual death is being separated from God. Spiritual death is being separated from God. I don't think Jesus is praying this prayer because of physical death. I think he's praying this prayer because he cannot handle the thought of being separated from his father. That's what's going to happen on the cross when the father is going to lay on him the entire sin of the world. This is why Jesus says, Father, why have you forsaken me? Why? This is why he says that from the cross, because the father has to turn away, because the father can't be in sin. The father can't be in that place. So when all that sin gets poured upon Jesus, they become separated. He's never experienced that before. 
He's never experienced being separated from his father before. The very thought of this happening is too much to bear. To the point where it feels like he's going to die. And he's praying and asking this for the father to ask for this to pass. Can you please let this pass? But not my will, but your will be done. How intense did this have to be if he knows this is his very reason for coming to earth? If he knows this is his very purpose? If he knows this is God's desire of why he was sent here? If this is what he was resolute about? How intense was this that he would pray this prayer? I think to me this is one of the best examples. This is what we're made for. We're created for him. Jesus demonstrated that when he became a man and he came to earth, he demonstrated that same thing. My whole purpose is to be with my father. You know, that's how he said he lived his life. John 5, 19, he says, the son does nothing of his own initiative. He only does what? He only does what he sees the father doing. For him to be able to say, I only do what I see the father doing, I only do that, must mean he's always seeing the Father. There's no way he could think that statement in John 5, 19 unless he's always seeing the Father. He's always present with him, always connected with him, always intimate with him, always seeing him. Jesus is showing what it means to really be human. Jesus was the most human person that ever walked the face of the earth. He's the most human. He's the example of what it means to really be human. And look at where his heart is. His heart is, I can't even fathom the thought of being separated from my father. You know, I think for us, it's, it's been um, challenging to, to have that. And the reason I say that is because of what's been happening past three years, right? Since 2020, I think that it's really disrupted our rhythm, okay? And personally, I'm a person like, I like rhythm, right? I like, I like a general rhythm where like, get up the same time, do the same thing. You know, ha I have my rhythm where, you know, I spend my time with the Lord and then I go on a prayer walk and then I take my daughter to school and then I just like, and when my rhythm gets all messed up, I kind of get messed up, right? <laughs> so I'm a very step-by-step -step person. So when my rhythm all gets messed up, then I kind of get thrown for a loop, right? And so I think for me, that was one of the things that kind of happened during 2020. You know, my rhythm got messed up. There is no rhythm, right? It's not like I got an altered version of rhythm. There's like no rhythm, right? I could not do anything. And I think that when we've gone through that experience, and I don't know if it was like you, it's just, we're just kind of waiting for it to be done, right? We were just thinking, I remember when it first came out, my wife and I, uh, in our family, we had planned a trip for Korea. Okay, so we had been planning this for a long, well, my wife had been planning, she'd been doing all the work. We've been planning this for a long time, we were going to go to Korea. We had everything set up, okay, where we were going to go, and we were going to go in June. Okay, that's when we had set, set, bought all the tickets, did all the Airbnb stuff, like, mapped out every single day, da 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 and then when the pandemic hit in, 20, in, in March of 2020, then I felt like 
oh, okay, it's going to be over. It's gonna, we're we're going to be able to go. So, like, we didn't cancel the tickets, right? And then March came, then April came, and I'm like, I don't think we're going to go. I don't think we're going to go. Okay, so then we're like, okay, let's reschedule. Let's reschedule. So we rescheduled the trip for December. So December 2020, we rescheduled it again. Okay, bought the plane tickets, do all the thing again. And we're like, oh, for sure, for sure, we're going to be able to go in December, right? It's only April, May. For sure, it's going to be done by December. Okay, well, you know, December rolls around and it's like not happening again. So we rescheduled again. Okay, we didn't buy the tickets then, but we rescheduled again. We said we're going to do it the following summer. Following summer, not happening again, right? And eventually it felt like, okay, I'm tired. I'm not going to, I'm not going to reschedule again. God, you just have to show us when to do it, right? But I think when we look through that, that situation, I think that we're all kind of like feeling that way. We're just kind of waiting it for it to be done. Right? And I, I totally get it. I was exactly the same thing. Like, I'm done with the mask. I'm done with the quarantine. I'm done with all these things. I'm just, I'm done with all that. Okay? So I just felt like when it was starting to open up again, I just felt so good. You remember, like, when the first time you could, like, go somewhere or you can go somewhere without a mask or you can go somewhere and, you know, you don't have to worry or you have more freedom, things are opening up again, like churches opening up again or movie theaters are open again, or whatever's opening up again, you're like, I feel like I could breathe again. You know, like, okay, finally. Finally getting back to some normalcy and all that stuff, right? And that's the way I felt. But you know what the Lord has been really showing me? It's like, um, and a lot more lately, you know, which is, there's stuff that I was doing during this time. And if you're just waiting for it to be over and to be done, you're going to miss it. There's stuff that I was doing. There's stuff that I've been doing worldwide, all throughout the whole world, all throughout all of humanity, all throughout the church, not the little C, but the big C, all throughout the whole church universal. I was doing something, and I'm still doing something, and I want you to see it. I don't want you to say, okay, we have it in the rearview mirror, which it kind of feels like it is, and I just wanted, I don't want to think about it anymore. But in reality is, we went through it. The reality is, we did go through that. The reality is, it did have an impact, and it's still having an impact. Whether it's financially, socially, economically, whatever, it's still having an impact. Whether we want to think about it, whether we want to look at it, whether we want to acknowledge it, it's still happening. It's still, it's still there. It's still going on. And so to me is, let's go with eyes wide open. What's happening? What has happened during that time? And one of the things that I think is happening, and I'm going to give this word, is holy discontent. I feel like God was stirring up a holy discontent. Now, you're not going to find this term in the Bible. I, I made it up. Okay, but this principle is in the Bible, okay? And you might think, like, this is a strange word, holy discontent, because doesn't the Bible say we shouldn't be discontent? You know, look at, uh, you know, look, look at 1 Timothy 6.6. Okay, it says, 1 Timothy 6.6 6 says, but godliness with contentment is great 
gain. Okay? The Bible talks about how we're supposed to be content. And in fact, with contentment becomes great gain. Like this is the way we're supposed to be. We're not supposed to be discontent. We're not supposed to be complaining all the time about our situation. We're supposed to be content with where we're at. Okay? And typically that's what we think about when we think about being discontent. They're like, discontent seems like a sin. But I think there's actually a holy discontent that's not sin. That's actually from God. You're like, Sam, what are you talking about? Let me give you some examples. Okay, let me give you some examples. Uh, let's look at three different words. Fear, fire, serpents. Okay, fear, fire, serpents. It sounds like a, a game show. What, what is this? Fear, fire, <laughs> No, but seriously, this, these are three different things that you see in the Bible. When you look at them, they sound negative, correct? Negative, fear, you shouldn't have fear. God has not given us a spirit of fear, right? Perfect love casts out fear, okay? But there's actually fear that God tells us to have. Did you know that? What kind of fear does God tell us to have? The fear of the Lord. The fear of man, sinful. That kind of spirit of fear, sinful. Fear of the Lord, holy. Let's look at fire. Fire, you see fire in the Bible, all described. It can get very negative. Into the lake of fire, cast out with burning fire where there's burning and gnashing of teeth. That kind of fire. But you also see another kind of fire. You see that fire when Moses sees the burning bush that's not getting burned up. You see this fire when Israel is in the wilderness where his presence comes in as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. You see this with a serpent, with a snake. Okay, we just, we just talked about that. It's in Genesis chapter 3. Satanist comes in a form as a snake, as a serpent. Good? Not good. Bad. <laughs> Evil. Sinful. But then you also see in the wilderness, when there's a plague coming across Israel, what does Moses, what does the Lord instruct Moses to do? Put a serpent on a stick and raise it up and have everybody look at it. And when they see that serpent, they're all going to be healed. Sinful? No. This was God's instruction. This was God's instruction. So one of the things I see from this example is, we can't be so narrow-minded and put everything in this black and white category, okay? It depends on how God is seeing it and viewing it. So let's look, let's look at this idea of holy discontent again, okay? When we look at this holy discontent, there's obviously discontent that's sinful like we talked about, okay? So this discontent would be like, I'm not satisfied with how much money I have. I'm not satisfied with different things that the way that I've been provided for or whatever, that is, to me, sinful, right? Discontent. But there's a holy discontent. Let's look at that example. Okay, let's look at Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verses 19 uh, through 23. This, I think, is like a good picture of the holy discontent. It says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. 
For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we eagerly await for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our body. Okay, so if you see in this passage, this describes what we talked about before, about God's grace coming in Genesis, about this is not what he set up for us. This is not the kind of life he designed us for. He didn't design us for a life where we feel separated from him, that we feel distant from him. He separated us to have that. But what this passage says is, when we are in this state, that there's going to be a groaning. And what I would say is a holy discontent. You're never going to be fully content while you're here on earth. And we're not supposed to be. You're never going to feel fully content here in this body, here on this planet. You're never going to be. Because we're going to have some holy discontent. Because there's going to be a longing to be with him. That can never be fully satisfied here. They say that, you know, for Christians, while you're on earth, this is going to be the furthest you're ever going to be from God. And they say for non-Christians, while you're here on earth, this is going to be the closest you're ever going to be with God. But for the Christian, this is the furthest away we're ever going to be from God. Think about that. We're not supposed to feel content all the time here when it comes to being with him we're going to feel a holy discontent. And the reason I bring this up is because I think this has been happening during the pandemic. God has been stirring up a holy discontent because there's a lot of things we feel discontent about during that time. A lot of things were happening. A lot of things we were getting stirred up. A lot of things were happening internally with our feelings and our relationships. You know, it's interesting because, like, um, during the pandemic, when it first started, like, I'm an introvert, and so... I actually enjoyed it a lot because, like, I had a lot of alone time, okay? But as it kept going on, you know, my wife's at home, my kids are at home, they don't go to school, I'm not getting a break, right? They're with me all the time. I have, like, you know, it's like, okay, I had the introvert thing where I'm not with big groups and stuff, I could be alone, but, like, I get no break from my family, right? That's when I started doing my prayer walks longer and longer and longer. I was gone for 45 minutes, an hour, two hours. Susan's like tracking me. Where are you going? Where are you going? I'm just trying to be with Jesus. <laughs> right? But it was stirring something. There was a reason that I had to feel like I need to get out. Right? And it's not just being cooped up in the house. It's because, like, it's stirring something. And I felt like what the Lord was telling me during this time is nothing is getting stirred that wasn't already there. Nothing is getting stirred inside that wasn't already there. God is just using this time to make you aware of it. God is just using this time to make aware of it. And boy, it was coming out like crazy, you know? Like, I see different people's reaction. They're doing all kinds of crazy things during that time. All kinds of reactions that seem like nonsensical. Like, it doesn't make any sense how they're reacting. I just saw that so much. Why was that happening? 
Things were getting stirred up. Things that were already present before, but got covered up. Covered up from busyness, covered up from activity, covered up for this, covered up from distraction, covered up with all these different things. When all those got taken away, start getting it revealed. God was started revealing that stuff in me. This is what's happening inside. This is what's happening inside. But I think at the core of what was happening inside is this idea of holy discontent. Those things were getting stirred up. And when those things were getting stirred up, I feel like the Lord was saying, hear my calling. Hear my invitation. Um, in, in my book, Be Free, I introduced this concept called the hunger principle. Okay, the hunger principle. Okay, and so this is the way it was kind of set up. Okay, so let's say, let's say you haven't read the Bible for a really long time. Okay, so you're not participating in the New Testament reading plan. <laughs> and you haven't read the Bible in a long time. Okay, so it could be now, it could be like, you know, in the past, whenever. I remember times when, you know, even as a pastor, like there's be days and days and days where I just did not read the Bible. And as a pastor, there's a lot of guilt that c comes with that, right? And I don't know about you, but like, uh, well, the Bible's on the phone. It, it, does, it doesn't apply as much. But like I, back when the Bible's on paper, you know, I would see the Bible on the table and I would look at it and think, I really should open that up. I should, I should really pick up the Bible. Ah, oh, no, I can't, can't, I can't do it right now. I'll, I'll do it later. I'll do it later, right? Right? And I don't, and, but when I kept doing that, it just kept getting heavier and heavier and heavier every time that I kept doing that. And so when I did that, um, when I started going through the cycle and the Lord started teaching me more about the stuff that I talked about in the Be Free book, I started realizing my perspective on that is totally wrong. Right? The Bible, reading the Bible was like uh, something to do on my checklist. Like, this is something that I need to do. So I check it off. And when I don't do it, I feel like that empty box is like glaring at me, right? I'm a list person. Like, I need to check off everything on my list, and I, I didn't check it off. And it kept bothering me, right? And it kept stirring inside, and I felt very guilty. And I felt it really like a heavy weight. And really, the longer it went, the harder it was for me to pick up the Bible. The longer it kept going, the harder it was to pick up the Bible. Then the Lord gave me this analogy of uh, this like hunger principle, okay? And I like the hunger principle because it has to deal with food and I love food, okay? So if you love food, you can relate to this. So it goes like this, okay? So let's say you're wake up in the morning, you wake up late in the morning, okay? You don't have time to eat breakfast. You have to just go straight, straight to work, straight to school, straight to whatever, right? And then you're busy all day. You're just like crazy busy. You're so busy, you couldn't eat lunch. Okay, you just skip through lunch. You're like crazy busy, right? And then you come home at the very end of the day, and then you feel some stirring going on inside, right? And it's like bubbling up and feeling all this stuff going on inside. What is that feeling? What is that thing you're feeling? You're feeling guilty, right? You're feeling guilty that you didn't eat breakfast, and you didn't eat lunch like you're supposed to, you didn't check off those boxes. You're feeling guilty, right? Is that what you're feeling? No, that's not what you're feeling. You're feeling hungry. You're feeling hungry. So what do you do when you feel hungry? You go to the refrigerator, you open it up, and you eat. And then he was saying, this is what happens spiritually. You don't eat. You don't 
spend time with God, you're not feeling fulfilled, and you feel something stirring inside. And how do you interpret that? I feel guilt. And he was saying, look at what happens physically. You would never interpret that as guilt and obligation and, and condemnation. You would never interpret it that way. But that's exactly what we do spiritually. When you're not spending time with him, when you're not being intimate with him, and you feel that stirring, that Romans 8, groaning and longing and hungering for God, how do you interpret it? I feel guilty. I feel condemned. Is that right? Or do we need to see this differently? You know, I remember I was um, spending time away. I was at uh, a retreat. And uh, I was at the retreat, and it was after one of the sessions that I was in my room, and I was by myself. And I just felt really empty. You know, I just felt really empty. And I was like, the session went, actually went really, really well. So I was like, why am I feeling so empty? And then I started realizing, I really miss my family. I really miss my family. And so when I started feeling those different things stirring inside, what was I thinking? Oh, I feel so guilty that I miss my family. I'm so guilty that I'm having these feelings. Is that what I was thinking? No. I'm not spending time with them. I'm not with them. And so I'm feeling it inside. We were created for God. He breathed his spirit into us to give us life. We're made for him. And if you don't spend time with him, it's going to make sense that you're going to feel something inside. But don't misinterpret what the feelings are that you're having inside. It's not guilt. It's not condemnation. It's hunger. You're feeling hungry. And I think some of us on here, honestly, I think we're starving. I think we're starving right now. But we can't assess it correctly. We feel like the discontent that we're feeling is for something else. We feel discontented with our marriage, or we feel discontented with our finances, we're discontented with our health, or discontented with our job. We feel discontent in all these different areas, and we feel like, this is the reason I'm feeling discontent. And I'm not trying to minimize all those things. Maybe some of that is contributing. But what I'm asking you today is consider something else. Maybe you're feeling a holy discontent. Maybe you're feeling a Romans chapter 8, where your spirit and your soul are groaning. Groaning for the Lord. Maybe there's a hunger stirring up in your spirit that's so unaddressed that you are starving to death. And again, as you're hearing me say this, if you're feeling guilt and, guilt and obligation, that's the wrong feeling. What is the feeling you should have? When you feel hungry physically, just go eat. Just eat. That's the exact same way you should be spiritually. Recognize your hungers and just eat. Come and enjoy what you're created for. I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up. 
And as they come up, I want us to kind of prepare our hearts to eat. You know, for us to really come and ask the Lord to address this holy discontent that we've been feeling. To really ask the Lord to come and really come and to enter in to really address the groaning and the longing that we've been having inside. But I think before we do that, I think we need a time of confession and repentance because I think we've been trying to fill it up with other things. And again, this is not to produce guilt. It's not to produce like condemnation. It's not at all. I mean, you know, listen to what my message is saying. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is there is a recognition we need to have. And we need to turn away from that. You know, because maybe we've been having this discontent and we're saying we're trying to fill it up with Netflix or fantasy sports or all these different things that we could be doing on the internet or through other means, you know? And I'm not saying you can't enjoy those things, but if you have a holy discontent and a hunger, that's like, you know, when you're super hungry and then you're just eating spoonfuls of sugar. Right? You're really hungry and you're like getting the spoon and you're like eating the sugar. Feels okay for a second. <laughs> But you're going to come crashing down and you realize it is doing, it's doing nothing here. It's doing nothing here. So what I'm asking you this morning is, can we come to the Lord and say, I want to turn away from that and I want to turn to you. I want to come and I need to eat. I need a double portion. I need a double portion of you this morning. And not just today, but every day. And so my prayer has been lately, God, increase my spiritual stomach so I can eat more. Increase my capacity. Like if you're at the buffet table and you've had three plates already, but you really want more, that's the way I feel right now. Please increase my stomach. Increase my ability to receive from you. So, Lord, we want to do the, ask that right now. Increase our spiritual heart. Increase our spiritual stomach right now so we can receive greater and greater measure from you. We want to just encounter you this morning and to say, this is what I need. This is what I've been longing for. This is the reason I've been having this holy discontent. Thank you for speaking to me this morning and opening my eyes. Now let me get my fork and my knife out. Let me get busy eating and receiving, drinking from the wellspring of life and eating the bread of life. Help us to do that right now. Help us to receive from you right now. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So the worship team is going to play. We're Thank you so much for joining us for our online service. Hope you will join us in person sometime. It would be great to see you and meet you. Don't forget to subscribe to our Catalyst YouTube channel so you don't miss out on anything. And be blessed this week. And as always, thank you, Jesus.